All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you each week, I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes uh, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? With regard to Chen's newsletter, he is not taking new subscriptions at this time. Uh, he, we expect he'll take a few new ones in the new year. If you are interested in signing up for his excellent newsletter, you need to go to miningstocks.com. That's miningstocks.com uh, to put your name on a waiting list. And then depending on the number of people who drop out through attrition, he will be adding some new people to his list. But Chen has had a remarkable track record, which is why his letter is so popular um, and, uh, well, we've had Chen, we have to get him on the show sometime again to talk to us, but uh, he has had some, some excellent picks over the years that have really made an awful lot of sense uh, for him uh, and for his subscribers. Um, so uh, my newsletter is available uh, at this point in time, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and you can sign up for that by going to miningstocks.com, or you can call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, in New York during the regular work week in New York between... 9 o'clock and 4.30, uh, Monday through Friday. Claudio Bassi is available at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. I should also like to remind you that the best website to go to to access all that I do, including accessing this radio show, is Media. That's J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R-Media.com. And you can follow me and a lot of my ideas on Twitter under the handle jtaylormedia.com. Media, J-A-Y, Taylor Media. I want to thank our sponsors uh, for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors are Arroway Energy, Aravista Gold, Blue Sky Uranium, Bravada Gold, Brazil Resources, Dynacor Gold Mines, Millrock Resources, Northern Free Gold, and Riverside Resources. I also want to thank each of you uh, for making this show the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel, and our numbers just keep on growing. I want to thank you for listening Tell your friends uh, about our show. And by the way, uh, you can go back to all every show we've done since March um, 24th, 2009 is, uh, is archived. So you can go back and listen to any or all of those shows if you like. And uh, also if you go to our website, uh, go to the Voice America website, you can see there's a listing of all of the guests that we've had since that period of time. And I think you'll find... A lot of very, very impressive guests. That's what's really what makes this show is uh, are the guests that we have, and we have some excellent guests today too. 
I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. Before we do, I'd like to just mention a couple of ideas, uh, a couple of things about um, our sponsors, the ones I just named. Uh, I do like to try to keep our listeners up to date with newsworthy events that take place uh, for our sponsors. And with regard to that, I would just like to mention the Airway Energy uh, selling at about 44 cents today. They did close on their acquisition of uh, 300 barrels per day uh, in um, western Saskatchewan. Uh, and this, um, the company feels that it did that it got a really great deal because uh, of the price it paid uh, for those 300 barrels a day, and uh, it should come out and, and I think help and enhance this company's earnings very nicely uh, as we head into 2013. Also. Uh, the company did uh, close on a $4 million transaction. Uh, they raised some equity, and uh, the company is averse and will not use bank credit uh, to uh, to explore, even though most of uh, the drilling that it does is, is more development drilling than wildcat drilling. It is uh, very, very conservative, uh, and that is one of the things that I like about the company. By the way, I will have uh, Chris Cooper will be with me next week. He's the CEO of this company to talk about his plans going into 2013. I would also like to mention that uh, Brazil Resources um, is another sponsor this, uh, to the show. We have not yet had Amir Adnani on this show to talk about Brazil Resources recently. He will be coming on sometime uh, in uh, in the new year. Uh, Brazil Resources, though, did uh, has just announced that they have made a discovery, a new discovery, a polymetallic uh, copper gold discovery uh, in Brazil. And uh, there are two high-grade gold, copper, lead, zinc, silver mineralized zones that were discovered uh, so far to date. Uh, Amira Nani is certainly one of the uh, rising CEO stars in the junior exploration space. Uh, he's done a very nice job with his uranium company for sure. Uh, uranium Energy is producing uh, uh, uranium now, one of the first new producers in a long time to come along in the United States. And uh, I know that Amir uh, is highly regarded for his uh, for his executive um, capabilities. So we will have him on sometime in the near future to talk about Brazil Resources, uh, which is selling at about a dollar twenty today, up six cents in a market that has been. Well, fairly difficult, uh, to say the least, for most junior mining companies. Uh, it has been one of the most trying uh, markets that I can remember, and I've been following the junior research sector since uh, since the early 1980s, actually the late 1970s, if I... Really, uh, if I'm really truthful about my age, that's uh, started following the gold sector, gold mining, way back in the last bull market uh, in the late 70s. And I was convinced that there was a correlation between the debasing of a currency and uh, work ethic and inflation and a lot of other problems that arise when we start to believe that we can uh, we can we can fool Mother Nature. We don't have to pay attention to uh, the old conservative ideas of our grandparents. Uh, they're old fogies, out of date, and we're young and we know better. Well, that's what we all thought when we were younger. But I did uh, learn from a professor I had at Heston College named Peyton Yoder that there was some connection between work ethic and morality and inflation and lots of bad things that happen when you start to debase your currency. So I started following the gold, uh, gold mine, the gold sector, and then started to follow gold mining. Uh, companies as well, and uh, and that's where I got my start. But I can say that going back to the 1980s, uh, when I first started following this uh, this industry, and we had a 20-year bear market during that time. Uh, in recent years, I think 
the t- what we're going through right now in the junior mining sector is about as difficult as anything that I've seen in quite some time. Well, on today's show, we're going to depart uh, to a great extent from the normal conversation we have here. We're going to talk about global warming. Now, this is a very emotional topic, but what we want to do on this show, if we can, is put our emotions aside and use our God-given brains to try to act as rational human beings. We're going to have Professor Amy Aresk, uh, Naomi Ariskus on with us, and she will be with me at about 3.30 today to talk more about her book, Merchants of Doubt, and why there is def- a definite and very strong evidence that human beings are responsible for the very rapid rise in the presence of greenhouse gases and, and the global warming. Uh, and, um, and we've seen just recently here as a, as a citizen of New York City uh, what that means uh, in uh, in real terms for us. What this uh, horrible hurricane that we had this year uh, really started to get a lot of us New Yorkers to start to think, I think, more seriously about the ramifications of global warming. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just this year, but last year uh, a big threat of a hurricane was coming up this way. Uh, was supposed to be what we got this year, and I was breathing a sigh of relief as the summer was pretty much over. We were into the fall. I'm saying, wow, good. We, got re- we, we didn't have anything very serious last year, meaning 2011, and so maybe we'll get by this year. And then, lo and behold, what happens is the worst hurricane in, uh, in, in perhaps ever. I know the highest... The, uh, the highest seawall ever uh, in New York City in lower Manhattan came crushing into the southern part of, of the island and, uh, well, lots of life and, and huge amounts of damage was done. So this is maybe something we're going to have to start to get used to. So we're going to talk to Naomi Ariskus, uh, ask her for evidence that, in fact, we want to see the evidence that humans are, in fact, responsible for what's going on for global warming, for climate change. Uh, and in that same vein, we're going to talk to John Rubino, uh, he will be joining me in the second hour of today's show to talk about some of the technologies and profit opportunities that may be available out there uh, in uh, in terms of alternative energy uh, uh, technologies uh, and you know what some of the things we might look for um, as investors in that space. Uh, are there opportunities, and if so, can he point us in some directions? In just a few minutes, I'm going to be talking to Brent Cook. He's a geologist and mining stock picker. Um, he writes a newsletter that I think I think Brent is one of the best there is out there now. He uh, uses his uh, his skills and his uh, knowledge as a geologist. He's also worked with some pretty skilled investors like uh, Rick Rule in the past. I think Brent brings with him an expertise that is very much worth listening to. You don't want to miss what he's going to to say in a few minutes when we have him come on after the break. Um, and Brent is definitely a believer in global warming. And, you know, I was a skeptic. I would like to believe that global warming isn't a problem. I am a libertarian. I'm a free market guy. The last thing I want to see is more intrusion from government in my life, in our lives in general. I think free markets work better than government dictates. At the same time, if we have this huge problem, this global warming problem, then it would be very foolish to ignore that. So better than than being stupid about the whole thing, we want to try to find out what's really going on. Well, when Brent Cook talked to me some time ago after I had uh, Bob Hoy on the show, Bob is very much a skeptic and not a believer in in human causes of global warming. Brent said you might want to pay attention to uh, to Naomi Ariskus, and Brent gave his own views, and and I should say his studied views. Uh, Brent uh, is very careful and cautious, and but it is his. Um, I think. Brent is a very ethical, very 
you know, someone that you can trust who who really uh, uses a, his good conscience to decide what the truth is, and having that reputation allowed me to open my mind a little bit and to listen to Naomi Ariscus and to have her on the show. Once uh, it was back in May of this year that we had Naomi on the show, and she's going to be coming back again, as I said. So. Um, we, you know, we do need, I think, need to be realistic about things in life. We have to put our own prejudices and our biases aside from time to time, and it's painful. I think what we're doing now, though, very much in the area of global warming, is the same thing as we are doing uh, that we are doing in the financial front, where we're basically kicking the can down the road. There was one concept in Naomi's book. Uh, merchants of doubt um, about uh, the concept or the terminology is thermal inertia, and as I understand it, we'll ask Naomi about this, but as I understand it, uh, there was a period of time when it was recognized we were having this global warming phenomenon that the oceans could absorb a great deal of this uh, energy, this heat, uh, without causing climate changes. But at some point in time, as the oceans war- got warmer and warmer, we would start to see uh, a huge amount of, uh, of change in our weather patterns. And it seems to me that that day of reckoning may very well be with us right now. And I believe there will also be a day of reckoning in the financial front. Uh, that day of reckoning, we can see uh, both sides playing chicken, both Democrats and Republicans playing chicken, trying to uh, protect their own interests as much as they can, their own political constituencies, uh, and not seeming to care a whole lot about what happens to the uh, to the financial sector uh, and more concerned about their own selfish interests. Well, I think we have to sort of look realistically at things and be good citizens, and I'm not trying to say that we should all, uh, that we that we don't look after our own interests. We very much have to, but how can we uh, argue that our own interests are not uh, in sync uh, with, a, with a healthy climate and a healthy environment and a clean environment? So, we're going to be talking to Brent Cook in just a few minutes. Brent will no doubt talk to us a little bit about uh, this global warming issue, but we're also going to talk to Brent, ask him about uh, what his views are in the gold sector, the gold mining sector these days, and uh, whether he thinks um, there is some money to be made in this space. And uh, so uh, we do have to go to break right now. Uh, don't go away. We'll be right back with Brent Cook. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. 
Blue Sky Uranium is a leading pioneer in the exploration for uranium in the Patagonia region of Argentina. Their exploration success has attracted one of the world's largest multinational nuclear power companies to fully fund Blue Sky's exploration programs. Argentina is very focused on nuclear to provide for their energy needs, yet they do not currently produce the required uranium to feed the reactors. Blue Sky has opened up a new frontier for exploration for uranium in Argentina with an objective of supplying both domestic and international markets. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Brent Cook. Uh, he's a geologist and a newsletter writer who I think is one of the best in the business. And I can tell you as a letter writer myself that when Brent Cook opines on a mining project or a company that uh, that owns that project, I pay attention to him. Uh, I believe that Brent is a geologist uh, an analyst of exceptional integrity as well, and I think that is probably as important as an intangible. But uh, once you start following people around and watching them over a number of years, you start to realize uh, who who some of the people are that you can trust. And unless Brent uh, kind of pulls a fast one on me someday, I, I think that I have to continue to believe I can trust Brent Cook, uh, which integrity, along with his skills, I think makes him very much worth listening to. So welcome, Brent. Really good to have you with me again. Well, thank you, Jay. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's really good to have you. And um, I, I do want to ask you about this really, really tough market. You know, uh, on the one hand, we've had a gold price that's been rising very rapidly for a number of years, and um, and I think that makes sense given the you know the policies and the money printing that's going on. And um, you know, I mean, I, I have I have to pass this this uh, this remark on to our listeners from uh, Mark Faber. He apparently said this on CNBC television. He says, I. I keep in my toilet a picture of Mr. Bernanke, and every time I think about selling my gold, I look at it, and I know better, Mark Faber said. So gold has been on a tear, and people you know, have been buying gold because they're losing confidence in government. But, Brent, uh, owning gold is one thing, and I always, I believe, personally, and I don't know whether, whether you agree with this or not, but I believe that people should own gold. The physical bullion have some of that around, and silver, but... When it comes to investing in gold mining shares, that is a lot different. That's a lot more difficult. It's, it's two very much different things. So there's one thing, you know, people buy gold and buy gold mining companies because there's gold in the ground. But does that make any sense? I think you've commented recently about uh, 
gold that's in the ground that 43101 reports report in the ground. But are we seeing that gold come out of the ground, Brent, in profitable production? Well, that's, that's a really good point. And this is the, the uh, dichotomy, if you will, between the price of gold and the price of gold mining company shares. Um, the, over the past, uh, what, almost 10 years now, the gold price has increased you know, on an annual basis at 21%. Yeah. Whereas the margins to the gold miners has increased, you know, the major gold miners has increased only an average of 8%. Mm. So we haven't seen the margin growth and revenue growth in the gold miners that you would have expected when the price went from, say, 300 to $1,700. Yeah. And that's the big problem out there is, you know, when you get down to why is that the case, Mm-hmm. And how do we solve that problem, or at least how as investors do we, you know, compensate for that and, and realize what's going on? And um, that's sort of where I'm really focused right now is, is why is that happening and what does that mean for us in the sector going forward, especially the junior sector, which is what I spend most of my time on. Right, you do. And, of course, um, well, we're seeing an increase in the margin, though, so it's not all bad, but, but there is a, quite a discrepancy there between the increase in the price of gold and the increase in the margin. You know, I look at the uh, price of gold relative to the Rogers Raw Materials Fund, Brent, and what I've seen is a very dramatic increase in gold relative to all those other commodities in the Rogers Fund since Lehman Brothers, and I've seen an increase in the price of gold uh, I, I mean, I've seen an increase in the pri- in the profits of the gold mining companies. But are you saying that number goes back to the uh, to the start of the gold bull market back in 2003 or so? That that increase in the price. Yeah, that's the annualized okay. increase. And in fact, since about 2006, uh-huh. mar- you know, the margins did increase up until maybe 2006, and they've actually slowed off since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a number of reasons for that. And I, I can, I want to direct your listeners to my website. Yes, where I posted a, uh, an article uh, right up, you know, just free, pull it down, profiting from the dismal state of gold miners and explorers. And in that, I go through in a lot more detail than we can as to as sure. why we're seeing this, um, you know, margin, not non-margin uh, growth. Mm-hmm. It comes down to a few things, but one is basically it is very, very difficult to find new economic gold deposits. There are just yeah. not that many out there. I mean, gold sells for 1700 bucks an ounce because it is hard to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the first problem. Um, the second problem is that what the industry has done to increase their production with the increase in gold price is they've gone out and started mining the lower-grade ore that previously was un- uneconomic and is now economic because of the gold price range, but that brings down their average grade. Mm-hmm. And you can see that since 2002, the average grade mined has come down something like um, almost uh, 100%. Oh. We've gone from 2 grams to 1 gram. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, the ore bodies are becoming less robust, not mm-hmm. as good, mm-hmm. and we're not finding new ones to replace it. Mm-hmm. So what is your focus then, Brent? Are you looking, I know you've always been known as, uh, as high-grade Brent Cook, but are you, are you looking, I mean, this sort of under... Under, I, I guess, really makes your argument, uh, and the reason, one of the reasons, you're looking for high grade deposits, huh? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend, I, I prefer to call it high margin deposits. Sure. Because you know, a thirty gram per ton deposit, you might lose money on, or is nine gram, you make money on. So it's all sure. about margin. Sure. But what, what, you know, what this whole, you know, my 
basic investment thesis comes down to is the major miners, all the miners, need new gold deposits, but they need deposits that are high margin. And so all I'm focusing on really is identifying those early stage projects or deposits that are out there right now that offer those high margins that I think the majors uh, and mid-tier companies will end up buying um, just because of the lack of new discoveries. So that's really my focus, and it makes a lot of sense. There's a graph on my chart on my uh, that in that article right now that shows discovery since 1992 last year, mm-hmm. and the peak was 160 million ounces discovered back in 1995, and last year we discovered on the whole about nine million ounces. Wow, we're producing 83 million ounces a year. So wow, that gap there is an incredible opportunity if we can identify the right company with the right deposit. Well, I know that you're working hard on that. Uh, do you care to pass along a couple of names to us? Uh, sure. There's there's one we've owned for quite a while in the letter. It's, it's called Lydian International. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got a, a 3 million ounce deposit in Armenia. It's low grade, but the economics of it uh, are really good, so it's a high margin deposit. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that somebody should buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one we've got in this portfolio that's done well is Bello Sun. They've got a uh, about a six million ounce deposit in Brazil. It's a nice deposit. Again, it's it has all the characteristics you look for in a deposit in terms of continuity and grade. And they should be coming out with a new, new resource next year. That's another one that I think a mid tier company should what, be buying. What that's the name is Bello Sun. What's the do you know what the symbol is? Symbol is BSX in Toronto, and the other one is LYD in Toronto. Uh huh. Uh huh. And are these both these companies have are they open pit? Deposits, Brent, or are they underground? Yes, no, both will be open pit deposits. Uh, one is a oxide deposit, meaning it's you know heap leach, very cheap to process. The other is a milling operation, but it's well located in Brazil near power. Um, it's about a thirty kilometer dirt road to get into it, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So those are a couple of your favorites. Uh, you uh, so what we're seeing, Brent, I guess if we're if we're going down and mining one gram material instead of two gram material on average, what we're seeing then is the need to move an awful lot more rock. Twice as, I mean, uh, you have to move an awful lot of you have to move twice as much rock to to produce the same amount of uh, same amount of gold. And are we seeing then capital costs rising very dramatically as well? Yeah, that's a good point. Capital costs have just gone through the roof over the past oh eight years or so, especially over the past three or four. And I've got another chart somewhere that shows that. But what, what's interesting to me is uh, uh, in a uh, talk that um, I think the president of Goldfields gave last mm-hmm. fall, where he pointed out that over the last six years, the major miners have spent 40% of their ca- of their market capitalization on capex to build the new mines. Mm. He projects that they're going to spend up to 65% of their market capitalization building the mines that they're putting in production. So oh. you can see the problem there. There's mm-hmm. <laughs> almost everything they make goes back goes back into building these things. And yeah. when you've got billion plus dollar projects, that's a real issue. And I think right. we're gonna see them again looking for lower CapEx projects. Is this, Brent, why uh why you think the major mining companies have seen a compression of their pro- of their PE multiples? Yes, indeed, um, and for sure, because you know I work with a number of funds I have for a while, and these are smart guys. They got into the 
gold mining sector based on you know the thesis that gold was go would be going up in, mm -hmm. in price, which was right. Yet they didn't see the profitability of their gold mining companies go up. So a lot of them have pulled out and are very suspicious now of these companies, and they don't value them at an you know an ex excessive premium. They actually undervalue them now because of how poorly they performed. Brent, we only have a couple of more minutes left. I want to ask you about a couple of other names here. I know that you're really big on project generators, and we've had, uh, we've got two of them as sponsors right now, uh, Eurasian Minerals and uh, Riverside Resources. What are your thoughts on those two companies? Well, uh, actually, both of those companies are in the Exploration Insights portfolio. They're good companies, well-run companies. They generate enough revenue from the projects they're working for their partners to almost cover their costs. Mm -hmm. And given this is such a high-risk business and hard to raise money right now, it makes a lot more sense to have somebody else spend the high-risk dollars exploring your property and you maintain a percent of the you know, discovery yeah. if there is one and move on and do that again. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at uh, Riverside. We had Dr. John Mark Stoddy on this show last week, and uh, he talked. Uh, I mean, there was a 445-meter intersection on their Lanak property that is being uh, uh, drilled or is being funded by Antofagasta, uh, but 0.164% copper. I mean, that doesn't seem like any. It's quite an intersection, but nonetheless, I, I guess, do you, would you take some encouragement from that? Um, no, that's not economic. Um, if it leads to something bigger, we'll see. But this is the advantage of the the project generator model they're following. That didn't cost uh, Riverside a dime. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And if there's something big, they'll they'll benefit from it. Uh, Eurasian Minerals. I, I that's one I re I really personally like very much. Uh, any thoughts about that one? That's probably the most successful project generator company that I'm aware of in terms of. The deals they've got across the world, they're in, I don't know how many countries now, probably eight countries, and they, for the most part, got major mining companies spending good money on their projects exploring it. They've got Valet, Freeport, Newmont, oh, I forget who else, but all spending money on their projects. And again, if a major mining company is willing to spend money on your project, as an investor, that's pretty good due diligence suggesting that these guys are turning up good projects. Right. Wants to go in on a project, their geologists like it, right? Right, exactly. And and we're going to have Miranda come on as a sponsor next season. Is that something somebody you follow as well? Indeed, uh, I like Miranda. They've done a great job uh, generating ideas in Nevada on the in Carlin style things, and they're also active in uh, the frontier regions of uh, Colombia. So yeah, that's a great company as well. Well, I'd like to. There's so much more I'd like to ask you. We are uh, just about out of time. I do want to thank you, Brent, for uh, uh, opening my eyes to this whole global warming issue. And uh, certainly, today's show is as much uh, yours as much responsible for today's show as I am, in a way, because you uh, introduced me to our next guest, uh, Naomi Riskus, who's going to be with us once again. Uh, what? What has really, if maybe just take 30 seconds or so to tell our listeners, you are a believer that global warming is man-made. Yeah, let me, let me make a slight correction. I, I'm not a believer. Belief implies you've got nothing to back it up. It's just a blind faith. It's in a something. faith. Yeah. What, I, what I am, and I'm, I've got a climatology uh, uh, minor, is that all the data points towards, well, certainly there's virtually no discrepancy or, or discussion or whatever regarding 
global warming. It's happening. It's a fact. Yes. It causes climate change. And all the information, virtually all the information, points to the uh, CO2 as the main cause of that. Now, it's, it's a real complex system. There's going to be discussions and disagreements as to exactly what the effects are and how that plays out. Mm-hmm. Basically, the Earth's atmosphere is just its method, uh, and the weather is its method of di- redistributing the energy that comes mm-hmm. from the sun. If it's hotter, there's more energy. You're going to see more extreme storms and more extreme weather. That's just how the atmosphere works. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's no question about that. Mm-hmm. Well, you, uh, given uh, your credibility in my eyes, you certainly uh, caused me to, to to open my eyes and to think openly about this. And I want to thank you for that. I think you've done a service, a good service in this very very important discussion. I want to thank you for coming on the show again today. Brent Cook and uh, folks, uh, we're going to go to Naomi Ariskus as soon as we go to uh, to our commercial break. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Naomi Ariskus. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. I've recently recommended Northern Free Gold to my subscribers because its nearly 6 million gold equivalent ounce resource can lead to a major rise in its share price. The company's Yukon project is in a politically safe jurisdiction, far from population centers, and it is advantaged with road access and nearby electricity. A large deposit and a vision of positive economics should make Northern Free Gold an acquisition target. The potential upside in my view for these shares is major. Our Vista Gold Corporation's principal asset is the Dewey Project, which currently has a 43101 compliant resource of approximately 3 million ounces of gold and is considered to be one of the last undeveloped, low-grade, bulk tonnage potential super pits in Quebec. The Dewey Project has significant potential to further grow the resource by both step-out drilling as well as further infill drilling within the existing porphyry. Our Vista has a well-designed, extensive 35,000-meter 100-hole drill program planned for Q4 2012, with results expected in early 2013 and an updated resource estimate to follow. Our Vista Gold trades on the TSXV under the symbol AVA. For further details, please visit www.arvistagold.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor 
at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me once again Professor Naomi Ariskus. Uh, she is a professor of history and science studies at the University of California, San Diego, an adjunct professor of geosciences at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography and uh, an internationally renowned historian of science and author. And she started her career as a geologist, uh, received her bachelor's of science degrees uh, from the Royal School of Mines, Imperial College London, and then worked for three years as an exploration geologist in uh, the Australian outback. So she definitely does have some things in common with our prior guest, uh, Brent Cook. Uh, in 1990, she received an interdisciplinary PhD in geological research and history of science from Stanford University, and Professor Ariskus has lectured widely in diverse venues and has won numerous prizes, including most recently the two, uh, 2011 Climate Change Communicator of the Year. More recently, she has uh, primarily been interested in the problem of anthropogenic climate change, that is, climate change caused by us human beings. Her uh, opinion pieces have appeared in the Times of London, the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Frank uh, Furter, Algamain, and elsewhere. Welcome again, Naomi, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Really good to have you with us. Thanks, Jay. It's nice to be back on the show. It's, uh, you know, we've had, since you and I last talked, we've gone through a hurricane here in New York City now. The year before, we were mm-hmm. supposed to have one. I, and I know as I watched the weather, they were talking about, you know, there was, you know, the, the early stages of the hurricane, they were talking about, well, maybe we'll have this cold front coming in from Canada that will push it out to sea. And so they were, you know, the weather guys were talking about various uh, routes that this hurricane could take. But as time went on, the doggone thing started to turn right in, instead of going out to sea, it turned right into us here in New York City. And as Governor Cuomo uh, said after the hurricane, you know, we know, you know, we can argue about what's causing it, but doggone it, we've got a big problem here. We've got global warming is causing, you know, untold damage, uh, property damage, and more importantly, many, many lives were lost. And uh, it is a very frightening, was a very frightening experience, I must say. Can you put this issue into some perspective now and tell us uh, how rapidly our atmosphere has been warming uh, up, let's say, since the Industrial Revolution got underway in the mid to late 1800s? Sure. Well, if you ask the question, how rapidly is the atmosphere warming, it doesn't sound like a big deal because we know that the the atmosphere has warmed about just under one degree centigrade since the Industrial Revolution, and that doesn't sound like much of a change if it's 50 degrees today or 49, most of us can't feel that difference. Mm-hmm. But what the scientific evidence shows is it actually is a big change because that one degree of warming, that's the whole atmosphere. You know, the entire Earth has basically been warmed one degree. It turns out it represents a huge amount of energy. And I think Brent Cook, who you just had a minute ago, really uh, hit the nail on the head when he said, weather is the Earth's means of distributing energy. So when you increase the amount of energy in the atmosphere, that energy has to go somewhere. That's basic physics and chemistry that we all learned in high school, you know, conservation of energy. It doesn't disappear. It just gets converted or moved around. And so that extra energy in the atmosphere is being put into the weather, and that's what we're starting to see now. Climate change is being manifested in weather, and weather really matters because we don't experience climate very much as individuals, but as you saw in New York, we sure as heck experience weather. 
Yeah, we sure have, and uh, yeah, and it becomes uh, it, it becomes more than just an academic question. Once you go through a hurricane like this, it becomes something that's uh, that now becomes much more important to to think seriously about. What about sea levels? Have we seen the sea levels rise? Yes, we have, and again, that's another one of those things. It doesn't sound like a lot. Um, gosh, I don't have the figures in front of me. I've forgotten what mm-hmm. the exact number is now on what the sea level rise is since the Industrial Revolution. Um, but the sea level rise is really important, too, because it's one of the clearest signals we have that people are changing the planet because the sea level has been rising since the end of the last ice age. But until about... And, it, and sea level rose rapidly from about 12,000 to 5,000 years ago for reasons that had nothing to do with people that were all driven by nat- the natural environment. But around 5,000 years ago, and a lot of biblical scholars think it's not a coincidence that it's around five to 6,000 years ago, the sea began to stabilize. And that five or 6,000 years ago corresponds with really the rise of Western civilization as we know it. You know, the Judeo-Christian calendar, the Old Testament story about Noah and the flood. I mean, everything we know about our own culture and everything that we can trace back in our own culture has happened within the last five or 6,000 years. This period of very stable sea level um, after the end of the last glacial period. And now in the last 100 years, we start to see sea level rise accelerating again and that new sea level rise is the peace that people are causing and um the storm surge that you experienced in new york uh, mm-hmm. during the hurricane and superstorm yeah. sandy uh you know most of that was wind driven and the winds of course are driven by the energy in the system but some proportion of that um was actually caused by a higher sea level than would have been the case if the mm-hmm. same storm had hit say 30 or 40 years ago Mm-hmm. Well, I know that, uh, I believe that I heard after the storm that the uh, seawall that had come up over the southern end of Manhattan was uh, uh, was four foot higher than the previous uh, seawall high uh, during a storm. So Right, that and that's ob- really important because, of course, it speaks crucially to the issue of infrastructure and adaptation. I feel like the most important thing about Hurricane Sandy was that it really showed us why climate change matters, that we're not just talking about inconveniences, and we're not just talking about minor changes that we can easily adjust to at low cost. Uh, we're talking about things that overwhelm our infrastructure, that our infrastructure is built to accommodate a certain range of conditions that we expect based upon what the past has been like. But if the future is going to be different because the climate change is system is changing, then our expectations won't be a good guide to the future. And we saw that during Hurricane Sandy, where all kinds of defenses and infrastructure were overwhelmed in ways that they hadn't been overwhelmed in the past. And as you know, at enormous physical and emotional and psychological cost. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so let's look at the, the causes which we've talked about uh, before, but it's greenhouse gases. I guess we're talking about uh, carbon dioxide and, and methane gas to an extent. Mm-hmm. Yep. And methane gas, how important would you judge that to be relative to uh, CO2? Well, methane is important um, for a couple of reasons. It's actually 20 times more powerful of greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So in the short run, methane is actually more important, mm-hmm. uh, but it doesn't stay in the atmosphere very long. It typically stays in the atmosphere only about 20 years, whereas carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere for more than a century. So the short-term effect of methane is actually worse than carbon dioxide. The long-term effect of carbon dioxide is worse. So that matters for two reasons. 
most of the scientific attention until pretty recently was focused on carbon dioxide because of that long-term impact. You know, once the CO2 is in the atmosphere, it's with us for a long time. And also because carbon dioxide is volumetrically the most significant um, greenhouse gas, you know, it's the thing, there's just the most of it. So if we want to address the problem, we have to address um, carbon dioxide. But, of course, methane has become more important uh, in the last few years because of the whole fracking issue uh, or what scientists call shale gas development. So when you, when you develop gas from shale gas uh, resources, that gas is methane. And if you burn it all, then the methane doesn't escape to the atmosphere. You convert it to CO2, and then you're just back to having another source of carbon dioxide. Uh-huh. But, if, but if some of that... So, so one aspect of shale gas development is that it produces greenhouse gas just like any other fossil fuel and would have to be addressed in that respect like any other fossil fuel. But in addition, there's this problem that's known as fugitive methane, and I don't know how much you want to get into this today on this show, but the short version of that is when you drill for shale gas a certain amount of the methane escapes to the atmosphere unburnt and uncaptured, and uh-huh. that's called fugitive or sometimes stray emissions. So now you're releasing a greenhouse gas to the atmosphere that's 20 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. Uh-huh. And if there's not much of it, if your drilling practices are really great and very little escapes, then it's probably not a big problem. But if your drilling practices are not so great and it does escape, then that's a really big problem. And so there's a lot of being work, a lot of debate right now about how bad the fugitive emission question is or not. Mm-hmm. So, so that whole issue of environmental goes well beyond the water uh, concerns that local farmers might have if, they're, if, they're, if their ponds are polluted by, uh, by escaping gases or whatever. It's, uh, it's another angle I hadn't thought exactly. of. It, certainly. Yeah. Certainly no, so it's, then, a, it's an angle that's really important from the climate change question, point of view, yeah. Uh, very interesting. And so probably an environmental protection agency or group, somebody that's looking over this will, will, be, or will be or you would think should be interested in the drilling methods to make sure that they're minimizing that escape of uh, methane. Well, right. what about animal um, waste and that sort of thing? If, the human, if humans are consuming, uh, first of all, the population is growing very, you know, almost exponentially, I guess, still. And, and we have, you know, growing parts of our global economy that are now more affluent and able to consume meat. Uh, does, is that likely to be a growing problem as well with more animal production and um, would that be a, a, a concern in terms of in- yeah. increased methane? Yeah, definitely. And again, this is one of the things where, you know, we get into this problem that this is a question that on some levels, levels is very complex. So, of course, whenever you have a complex problem, you try to figure out how can you somewhat simplify it. So, a lot of scientific attention has focused on the greenhouse gas emissions associated with burning fossil fuels because that's the largest single cause of climate change. CO2, you know, mostly CO2, mostly from burning fossil fuels. And so that's what a lo- where a lot of scientific and also political attention is focused. But you're absolutely right, it's not the only cause of climate change. So um, most scientists say about 80% of the warming is probably caused by greenhouse gases, you know, related to mm-hmm. fossil fuel use. The other 20% to land use changes, and that includes agriculture. So, yes, absolutely, animals give off gas. <laughs> they give off mm-hmm. methane, and that's a powerful greenhouse gas, as we just said. And also, when you cut down forests to create agricultural land, either for crops or for grazing, um, you, there's carbon dioxide released to the atmosphere associated with cutting down those trees when those trees 
decay and release their CO2 back to the atmosphere. So land use changes are very important, and as you said, it's tied to population growth. So more people uh, mean more pressure on agricultural land, more pressure to raise more animals because people like to eat meat, um, and so that also contributes to the problem. But still, most scientists who, if you ask them, they would say, yes, that's important. We definitely do need to look at that. And certainly population, you know, you could argue ultimately this is all driven by population because it's all about people doing stuff. But the reality is the vast majority of it is associated with a certain portion of the population doing a certain subset of activities, and burning fossil fuels is the most important of those diverse activities. Uh, I'd like to just address some of the... um, uh some of the issues that are raised by people who do not believe this is a, a man-made problem. Sure. Um, you know, for, for one, I, uh, the sun is, is an issue, and I just had this email from a friend of mine who said, uh, who, when he saw that you were going to be on the show, he said, Jay, the sun is hot, hot, hot. Jupiter has <laughs> developed a second red spot. Mars has lost its entire ice cap. Venus is glowing in the dark. Which men on this planet caused these things to happen yeah and, well of and, course and quote. so yeah. so so but, but you must hear a lot of this uh yeah yeah this, i mean it's, it's a favorite it's a favorite um kind of uh, way out for people and of course the sun is hot and that's a good thing because we wouldn't be here if it wasn't the sun is what gives us life you know that's why the pagans worshipped it but the question is not is the sun hot the question is is the warming we're seeing now caused by the sun or caused by some additional factor that is new and different in the last 50 to 100 years. And the evidence in that is overwhelming. And we know that because we have data on solar radiation, or what the scientists like to call solar insulation. Um, And NASA has been tracking this, you know, really in a rigorous way since we developed satellites in the 1970s. And what we can say unequivocally is the evidence shows no systematic increase in solar radiation over the last 50 years Mm -hmm. during the period in which we've seen the climate increase. In contrast, we do see a systematic increase in carbon dioxide during that same time period. So you have two possible causes. The sun is a possible cause. Carbon dioxide is a possible cause. And one of those causes, you have clear evidence it's happening. And the other cause, you have no evidence it's happening. So a rational person has to say that the sun as a cause has been ruled out. Uh Now, if we look at Venus, Venus, of course, supports this argument because Venus is super, super hot. No one can live on Venus. Why is Venus so hot? Because it has a runaway greenhouse effect because there's so much carbon dioxide on Venus. So... Venus should be a salutary lesson to us. It's a warning to us that if a planet moves into a runaway greenhouse situation, ultimately it reaches a position in which nothing can live. Now, no one right now is saying that we're heading towards a runaway greenhouse effect, but no one should take comfort from Venus. It's the opposite. Venus Mm -hmm. tells us what the worst-case scenario looks like. Mm Mm-hmm. What about, he mentions Jupiter and Mars as well. Oh, Mars, yeah. Well, the other thing about this, too, so Mars is a favorite uh, one to raise, uh, but it's based entirely on a false claim. It's not true that Mars is getting warmer. We have no systematic data on temperature change in Mars. In fact, we have no, NASA has no systematic data, no one has any systematic data on temperature changes on any other planet besides Earth for the simple reason that there's been no way to make such measurements. So we don't really know whether Mars has gotten warmer or colder, um, and you can check the NASA websites. You know, I always 
like to remind people, my co-author, Eric Conway, works for NASA. Mm-hmm. So we, we know a lot about what NASA does. Uh, you know, Eric works with NASA people on a daily basis. Every Monday morning, he's at work at NASA. There's no data on the long-term temperature trends on any other planet than Earth. We know the Earth is warming. We know carbon dioxide has risen. And we know that that carbon dioxide has come from fossil fuels. We don't know really what's happening on Mars, but we have no evidence to say that Mars has gotten colder. Yeah, another thing, uh, another bit of evidence that you presented in your book, uh, finger painting. Could you explain to our Oh, fingerprinting. <laughs> fingerprinting, finger I'm sorry. Finger painting sounds more fun. I like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do some finger <laughs> right. painting. Finger, so, finger printing. Yeah, right. The scientists do something that they call um, fingerprinting. And what that means is, so we know that carbon dioxide has risen. No one disputes that. Even the most hardcore skeptics that I wrote about in my book did not dispute that carbon dioxide has, has risen, and Dave Keeling, who did that work, received the National Medal of Science from George W. Bush. So there's no dispute that CO2 has risen. But the question that can be, literally, that can be legitimately raised is, well, how do we know that that carbon dioxide comes from human activities, from burning fossil fuels, and not from some natural source like volcanoes? And the volcano question is an important and legitimate one because volcanoes do produce carbon dioxide, and the majority of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere until, well, even now, the bulk of the natural carbon dioxide comes from the planet, mostly through volcanoes. So, okay. legitimate, totally legitimate question. So the answer is fingerprinting. And what that means is, does the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere have a different fingerprint than the carbon dioxide that comes from volcanoes? And obviously that's a metaphor because it's not literally fingerprints, but people understand the concept. And the answer is yes, and that fingerprint is in the isotopes. So most people have heard of isotopes. Isotopes are atoms of an element that have the same atomic number, so it's all carbon, but different atomic weight because there are extra neutrons. And most people have heard of carbon-14. That's a radioactive isotope. And because it's radioactive, it decays, and we can use carbon-14 to tell us how old things are. So most people are familiar with carbon-14. But it turns out there's another isotope called carbon-13. Carbon-13 is heavier than ordinary carbon, but it's not radioactive like carbon-14. It's stable. And so when you put carbon-13 in the atmosphere, it stays there, and you can measure it. Now, plants have a very, very interesting property. They don't like carbon-13. They prefer the ordinary, normal carbon-12 and so plants selectively remove carbon-12 from the atmosphere when they photosynthesize, and they concentrate that carbon-12 in their tissues. If those plants get buried in the ground and turn into fossil fuels like oil, gas, or coal, when you burn those fossil fuels, you return carbon-12 to the atmosphere. Mm. And so the carbon dioxide that you return to the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels is different than the carbon dioxide that was in the atmosphere before, so if you're burning lots of carbon of fossil fuels and if you're putting lots of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that um, is depleted in carbon-13, so it has less carbon-13, then you would expect that over the last 50 to 100 years we would see the carbon-13 concentration in the atmosphere falling. So this is a prediction based on what we know about isotopic, uh, you know, the behavior of isotopes in organic mm-hmm. systems. And lo and behold... Scientists have made those measurements, and sure enough, the value of carbon-13 has been falling, and not just falling, but it has been falling in absolute tandem, an absolute lockstep with the increase in carbon dioxide. Mm. So that tells scientists that this carbon dioxide cannot be coming from volcanoes. There's no way to explain that fingerprint. 
if it were being caused by volcanoes. It's exactly the fingerprint you expect if it's coming from fossil fuels and also deforestation. And indeed, that is the fingerprint that we have observed and measured. Yeah, it's it's really that's really interesting, uh, and and so there is it's just growing amounts of evidence clearly that uh, that we are uh, that humans are causing this, but yet there's there's this huge denial all the time. Uh, I guess it's you know sometimes we don't want to hear uh, we don't want to hear the truth. I think it's human nature. I mean, I've talked uh, really as I was looking at uh, and reading your book again this morning. Uh, I was thinking about the parallels between the financial world that I live in. And how we are really sort of interested in, and uh, you know, delaying the day of reckoning, kicking the can down the road, and so forth and so on. Uh, it seems to be uh, the issue here as well. And sometimes you just, I guess, denial is is the defense mechanism that humans put into place. But then in the end, um, you know, what good is that going to do us? We do have to go to a break. And I hope you can come back for a few minutes on the other side of the break, Naomi. Sure, definitely. No problem. Okay, great. Well, folks, we do have to go to a commercial break. When we get back, we'll have Naomi Ariskas with us for a few more questions. Don't go away. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters attention mining investors brazil resources incorporated trading as brizf on the otc and bri on the tsxv is exploring and developing five gold projects in brazil surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits it's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource bri has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in brazil led by recognized mining executive admir adnani chairman check out brazil resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. 